Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I got to tell you something, people. Uh, I'm going to a barbecue this weekend. And uh, my friend, his, his name's Alejandro Patino. And he's been on the show. And he's an actor. And he's just recently was the uh, spokesperson, the Mexican version uh, commercials for the spokesperson of Popeye's. And it's weird because, you know, you're going to a barbecue. And I don't really eat fast food much. But I'm sort of hoping they have Popeye's there because... When you don't eat junk food a lot, when you get something like that, it's just amazing. So I'll tell you next week if I got any Popeyes and if I'm still alive. So it's all good. Anyway, enough about that. I'm still dealing with the heat. You know, the 100. It's 108 now in Burbank, people. 108. And uh, my guest today is a a very very funny man. I I he's been around. He's 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 been on the Tonight Show. He's a comedian. He's an actor. He's he's everything. His name's Max Alexander. How you doing, Max? How you doing, Steve? I'm doing good. Listen, Steve, I got to tell you, years ago I was a spokesperson for not dependent depends, but something similar to depends, and people didn't come over to my house to watch me pee in my pants. <laughs> so I don't know if you got the Popeyes. I, I hope you did. I did try Popeyes a few times because the commercials look so good. I like that lady also. Yes, I, I like I like when they go wheezy and fast. And you know what? Yeah, yeah, You're a New Yorker. I'm a New Jersey and from New Jersey, so we we know our food. But when you best fried chicken uh, called AQ Chicken in Arkansas, Arkansas quality chicken. They pan fry it right in front of you. I was doing a gig out there. I was doing a, a Rotary Club for like a thousand people in Little Rock. And I was in the beginning of the show and it was like about an hour and a half before I had to get back on stage. And the guy that booked me said, I'm taking you for chicken, not this crap that they're serving here. And we went out for chicken and came back and finished the show. Was it amazing? It was amazing. It was like, it was. That was maybe the only reason to move to Arkansas. For the chicken. No, for chicken, unless you like ticks. Or uh, I went to an Italian restaurant there, and I ordered uh, the caprese salad, and it was sliced American cheese in between tomatoes. <laughs> oh, man. So and I, I thought it was a joke. I really thought it was a joke. And then, no, this is our caprese salad. I went, thank you. <laughs> now, now you're, you're, you're a New Yorker. Oh, yeah, straight through. Now, now, what part of New York did you grow up in? I was born in Brooklyn. I, At my age, I'm 62. There was a rule of thumb. If you wanted to be a comedian uh, in the 50s, you had to be born in Brooklyn. Uh, we had some people that were allowed uh, to get a form and fill it out to be born in the Bronx. But mostly it was Brooklyn. And uh, I lived there until I was about 12. And as we always say, my father got a better job, and we moved to Queens. Now, now, when did you know, when did you fall in love with comedy? When did you sit there and know that you wanted to be a comedian? And did you ever think when you started becoming a fan and getting into it, that it, it would be your lifelong, because you've worked forever, you've been on TV. When did you know, though? What, what changed your view to sit there and say, I want to be a comic? Okay, I'm going to play Monday Night Quarterback, which you actually can't say anymore because it's Monday Night Football. So I think there's Tuesday football. I don't. Is there a day they don't play football anymore? I know it's just Monday, so, Thursday, Sunday, Saturday with college. So the Wednesday night, the Wednesday night quarterback. Uh, looking back at it now, 
I had an older brother two years older than me. And as kids, he would always like to watch combat westerns, especially the show Combat, anything about World War II. And I would watch game shows and stay up until, and you know, like to watch a stand up on the Ed Sullivan show or like on the Merv Griffin in the afternoon. I would actually put it on just to watch the stand-up. Not saying I wanted to be a stand-up. I just liked it. Okay. And then uh, I kind of fell into it. I mean, really, it, uh, it's, it's a boring story. It has something to do with a pasta dish and a whorehouse. And, uh, no, it doesn't. No, no, it's a, oh, it's a clean story. but No, I'm saying but it, has, it actually has to deal with those things. I want to hear the story. Now this is interesting. Uh, it's, uh, I would like to make it interesting. It, it was very simple. My friend wanted to go and uh, start out at the improv. And uh, he said, come down for the open mic. And it was a lottery system. So 40 people showed up. There's only 10 spots. You put in 10 numbers, 30 blanks. And you draw a number. If you get a number, you go on. You don't, you come back next week. So he says, you come also. In case I don't get a number, you'll pick a number. I'm going, listen, I don't know if you know math well, but the more people you bring, the less chance you're really going to win because you're going to add more blanks. And either way, he picked number one, I picked number three. And I said, I'm not a comic. I love comedy, but I know you don't want to be the first one up. I mean, I used to go to Catch a Rising Star, The Improv. I always went to comedy clubs, but I never thought of becoming the comic. I really didn't. I just enjoyed laughing. It made me feel good. And... He says, no, i got to do topical stuff. i got to go first. Now, we know as comics now, you don't want to be the first one out. No. So, but he wanted, he went and died. Next person went up and just died. And then they put up Glenn Hirsch. Do you remember Glenn Hirsch? I know the name, yeah. Funny comic. And the improv put up a real comic to get the audience going. And then I followed, and I just told five jokes. I mean, street jokes. Just joke jokes. And I get off stage, and uh, Silver Friedman, uh, who at that time owned the club, uh, Bud was in Los Angeles already, uh, she says, I like that style. It's the old school. I like it. You're one of my comics. My friend heard that. He ran out. I started chasing him. He just like, obviously, I'm not a great runner. <laughs> and he just, you know, he just ran out. And wouldn't answer my calls. And uh, I found out the next day he joined the Navy. Oh, man. <laughs> he joined the Navy because he was so pissed that I didn't want to go and I got passed. It was really dumb, just dumb luck. What, did, what made that, you decide to do the street jokes? I mean, because you just were like, screw it. I've watched comedy. I know you probably had a certain cadence. You know a little bit about delivery. But you just said, I'm going to tell some street jokes. Now, I could, I could always tell jokes. I was in the garment line. And I always told jokes, you know, because I loved watching stand-up. But I didn't do routines. You know, a duck walks into the candy store type of joke. And the audience wasn't ready for it. And I was under no pressure. I was just, like, having fun. This wasn't my life on the line. When these comics go up to pass at the improv, it's like, you know, the holy grail at that time. You know, now comics go up to some clubs that aren't even as, you know, doesn't even have that. It's, it's, they just want to pass. They think every club, you got to pass to get on. 
you don't just have to keep working as hard as you could. But they were scared. They wanted to get on. I wasn't scared. And that's all that did it. I was not scared. So so you weren't scared. You get past. And now what do you do? Because you're sitting there. You told some street jokes. You're right. going to go back because she said you're one of my comics. So did they tell you come back this time? And what did, did you prepare stuff the next time you came back? Okay, so they gave me a week later. They said they're going to give me the opening spot, which, of course, I knew wasn't good. But that's where they gave. That was great about the time we started comedy. It was that they always gave the newcomer, two newcomers at the Improv in New York, the first two spots. To, you know, for the, you know, it was only like six-minute spots. But it got you in front of a full audience, a real audience, not an open mic audience or, you know, a bar audience, but a real, you know, you remember. But in those days, people actually during the week would pack a room and pay a full cover and two drink minimum to watch comedy. It was very lucky that we had that boom. So I went, all right. And I had a full-time job. And uh, so I would go to the work take the train home to Queens from the city, take a nap, get up at 10, go back into the city, stay there at 2, just watch the comics, and go back home, go take, go back to sleep, wake up at 6, go back to work. I did that for about, you know, six days, and I started writing material. I would practice on the subway, because I felt that, you know, it's packed the subway, so I held the newspaper in front of me, so it looked like I was just reading with my lips moving. When I was doing my acts, I would write the act on the newspaper. Okay. And uh, I went up and I died. I, I wrote some material and it wasn't fun. It was not fun. And then I sat back and I just kept on watching the comics and I'm going, all right, I'm watching the wrong thing. I'm, I have to watch what doesn't work instead of what works. And I realized I had to be who I am as a person. You know, I was trying to imitate a comic. That's what I was trying to do. Because you got to realize, I had no idea. I, I didn't know what a persona was. You know, which is very, very important. I mean, there's thousands of great comics out there, but they have no persona. And that makes the difference. That's that persona that the people are going to see and go, yeah, I like that guy. How did you find your persona? I mean, because, you know, it's like, as everyone says, you know, with comedy, it's not, you may have a great uh, personality off stage, but to actually find yourself on stage is hard. So did you mix men, mix your personality and a persona you had, or how did you try to start getting more of your persona on stage? Well, I had a lot of good friends. I had George Wallace, I had Paul Pavenza, I had Don Marrera, I had a lot of people. In the improv in those days, Everybody helped each other, and uh, a very funny guy named Mike Rowe. Who, I know Mike. Uh, yeah, so just really nice people, and I didn't realize my persona is me, just a little bit more cartoony on stage. I wish it was a little bit more, but it's very subtle, but it is a persona, but it took me a while. They would go, you know what? Paul Pavenza said, you, you laugh at your jokes, don't laugh. George Wallace told me, do the show completely straight-faced. Don't, you know, just do a deadpan. I did that. I loved it, but I had to add some more humanity to it. I mean, it's just fine-tuning, but you have to perform to realize that. 
you know, a, a, a good saying is you got to really like what you're doing on stage because you're going to be up there. I mean, in those days, you know, a headline you're doing 45 minutes an hour, an hour 10. If you don't feel well and you've got to be an act, you're not going to like it. Right. You've got to be who you are and just trust the material. And uh, it just came about that way. I mean, the first thing I tell comics to do when you see some, and uh, listen, how the hell do I know what I'm talking about? You know, yes, I work a lot. I've been very, very happy with my career. But I see a lot of comics that they don't have any eye contact with the audience. They're not talking to the audience, especially the new people. You know, they'll, they'll look down on the stage, they'll keep walking. You know, they just won't. you got to have that eye contact. It's very old-fashioned, but it does work. You know what's, you, you know what's also old-fashioned? And I noticed this when I did stand-up, and someone told me this. When you go on stage, when you take the mic out of the stand, you always put the stand behind you. Big mistake is not even to take the mic out. To, to, to control yourself in front of an audience for the first couple of years, you've got to keep the mic in the stand because the mic is a crutch. You look away, you move around. You don't take the mic out for the first year because that is something you don't need to worry about. Worry about your persona and the material. I know a lot of people go, oh, yeah, 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 what are you talking about? I'm telling you, all the people that I've told it to that didn't went, wow. I didn't realize it was a line here I could use and I should have taken a pause here. It slows you down because now you have to tell the story. No matter how hip your comedy is, you know, or how alternative, the people got to believe you. And you got to be talking to them, not to the mic. Now, now, when you found your persona and you started sure. getting up more, now, when did you sit there and say, okay, this is what I want to do? Because you said you were in the garment industry, you had the job, you used to do the hours going back and forth. When did you did you start getting a lot of work suddenly? I know there wasn't a lot of clubs as much back then. I mean, how again, did you... again luck came out? Uh, there were a lot of clubs outside of New York, like New Jersey, a drive. You know, just you know, a bunch at four thirty or four o'clock every day at the Improv. There'd be like forty comics waiting to be picked up to go to Jersey or Connecticut or Long Island to do a gig. You know, three people in the car, the, you know, the MC, the middle act, and the headliner. Uh, you know, the MC, a ventriloquist, and a guitar player. I owned a 1979 Ford LTD. It was huge, and it was mint. I, I used to send out a picture of my car to the bookers. And they go, oh, you got wheels, good. And we used to make, I uh, know, $50, $60 a gig. The driver got $15 more, and I worked every night. And uh, you really grew fast because you were really thrown into the pool without able to swim. So you had to really pick up, you know, you, you would swim or drown. And I wasn't going to drown. And I don't know how it happened. It just happened. So I, you know, I, I can't give you any uh, philosophy on that. It's just, uh, you know. 
When Either that or I forgot how I did it. Well, <laughs> how long did it take you to start moving, as, as we used to say, moving up the ranks, you know, going from okay. MC to middle to headliner? Because that was always a big thing because I, I was a Philadelphia comic when I would start out and it was always hard to get booked at a club in Philly, like the Comedy Works or the Outlet, as for a sure. middle oh. until you went, you had to get out of town and go on the road for a little bit Correct. and then they would come back. How did, when did you start moving up the chain? Uh, by the way, I used to play... Uh what was the one that was upstairs? Steve Young's place. Comedy Works. Comedy Works. Uh, tell you what the money was in those days. I, I'll tell you in a second. I mean, I think headliners, you know, with no name on the road now, make like twelve hundred a week, fifteen hundred with no name. I'm saying, maybe with a you know some like a name from a long time ago, maybe two twenty five hundred. I got for a long weekend to middle. I got twelve hundred. <laughs> it's crazy how it's changed. That's how huh? crazy it was. That's and like it, I used to say when I would MC. You know, you would some like Scarpati would pay you fifty or seventy five a set, and you were brand new, and it was the best thing because you would get all these weekends, and you would have weekend crowds, and your act just you learned that once you became a good host, you'd always work. And then back then there was pay, and so it was always a good thing. Correct, correct, and it was, you know, it was like. They really, the money was hand over fist in those days. We were very, very lucky. Uh, so what was the question again? I forgot already. When did you start moving up? On the, in the, in the, from, when did you start? Head, how long did it take you to get the headliner? That's a good question. Uh, I don't really remember. I, I got to tell you the truth. I was always, as Rick Messina, who now is, uh, you know Rick, Right. Used to manages, I think, uh, Tim Allen and uh, over the years, many other people. He says, You have the strongest, you're the strongest middle out there, which was good, but they wanted to raise me to headline at one point. And I said, well, What's the difference in money? And it wasn't enough money to my business sense to do an extra 30 minutes and to be at the end of the show and get the check spot. Right. So I said, no, I'll be a middle for a while. <laughs> so I was very lucky. Oh, my company went out of every year the company I worked for, or every three years, two years, they would go bankrupt on uh, Christmas week, and after New Year's they reopened under a different name. It was the same company. You know, everybody came back. It was our vacation basically, but legally they went bankrupt. So when they did it, the year I started, I started in a October, I decided uh, I'm going to take unemployment. And he went, what? I go, yeah, going on unemployment. Oh, yeah, yeah, you can't do that. Right. Yes, I can. So I just took the plunge. I saved up some money and I took the plunge. So you start working a lot. Now, were you getting the TV spots? Was that, was that the time when there was all the TV, the improv and stuff like that? Okay, here's another lucky story. Again, all luck. You know, you see, because you see so many talented people out there and you're going, how come they don't have a show? There's a guy out there now, uh, Vladimir, uh, I swear his name, throws me a Dominican, very funny guy out of New York. He did a TV pilot. He's hilarious. He has a great persona. He has a great voice. You really just want to hear him talk. Really nice. He did a pilot and didn't get picked up. And I told him, don't worry, I did three pilots. They all didn't get picked up, but I got more work out of it. So uh, it's all luck. It's all about luck. 
So uh, the question is, oh, the second week at the improv, uh, I go on stage and I get off and Pat Buckles, who was managing the club, comes up to me and says, uh, there's a guy who wants to speak to you at the bar. And I said, okay, because he's really big. We're going to watch you. So, you know, he didn't. So I go to the bar and there's this big, oh, I can explain, a big mountain guy there. It was freezing. It was winter. It was October. He's wearing shorts and flip flops, long reddish blonde hair, big red beard. And he says, uh, I just saw you inside. I went, yeah. And I see all the comics watching me from the back. <laughs> and they're going, I do these Federal Express commercials. Would you mind coming in and read for me tomorrow? I said, sure. That'd be great. So he gave me the address. And I went to Ron Darien, who was a comic. Okay. Eventually became, I think, a producer on Frasier. And I said, what am I going to have to do? And we were, he taught me how to, you know, uh, you know, give you your name and your your agent and everything in front of the camera, how to, you know, do that. And they said there'll probably be a cue card. And he gave me a, a very quick acting lesson. I went in there, had the audition, and I had a mustache. And the next day, for some reason, I decided to take off the mustache. You know, I didn't know what callbacks were or anything. And I get a call, and he go, we have a callback for you. So I go in, and the guy says, didn't you have a mustache? <laughs> and I go, what? And you had a mustache. Oh, I could grow that in a day or two. He goes, okay, we, we like the mustache. And I read, and uh, I got the commercial, so I had to go and have a mustache made for myself. How, how, where do you go to get that done? In New York City, uh, it was a place, it was a theatrical place in the same building of the after was at that time on Fifth Avenue. There was a photographer named Jules Krigsman. He did all the famous, like, Dorothy Lamour, Demar, Jerry Lewis. Matter of fact, his name was on more 8x10s than the actor's name. If the actor was that famous, it was Jules Kriegman as a photographer. Very famous. I just remember that for some reason. <laughs> and they took some of my hair and they made me a mustache in like three hours. I just, I just threw it out maybe a couple of months ago. Really? So, that's, so, so you basically, you, went, you, booked a, you booked your first commercial you auditioned on. And right. you, and you had a fake mustache in two weeks. So so you booked the commercial. I was now union. So, yeah, so okay, so you become union. So now now you're still in New York, right? So I get it. I'm on stage a couple of weeks later, and Pat comes up to me and goes, uh, "Somebody wants to talk to you at the bar," and I go, "Okay, who is it?" Goes, "I don't know, but he's smaller than the other guy." So I go in there. And he goes, hi, I'm Sidney Lamette. I've a, I really enjoyed your stuff. I like the way you perform. I have a very little part in a movie called Garbo Talks with Aunt Bancroft. Would you like to have that part? And I said, let me think about it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, come to my office tomorrow, and we'll talk about it. And I went to his office, and I spent a week playing cards with Aunt Bancroft and, uh, on the trailers. 
you're waiting to be, you know, waiting to shoot. So it's hurry up and wait and uh, acting. So, I, and that was in my, you know, first month a movie and uh, a national commercial. And then the guy from the, the FedEx said, I really like your voice. So I started doing voiceovers for Federal Express. So, again, it was just, it was luck, you know, did I have the talent? For them, I did. I had no idea I had that talent, but they liked what they heard. Now, as you were doing that, were you still trying to hone your act and then grow as a comic? Every day. Every day I'd be writing. Every day, I, you know, I, just like the guys do today, you know, that we'll go out and do six spots or go to Staten Island to work on a bar. So, like, people in L.A. driving up to, you know, uh, to Where's Great Adventure? Valencia? Yeah, there's Valencia. There's, there's right. a- yeah, they'll drive to Valencia to do a 10-minute spot. It's, uh, we did that in New York. We, you know, I would want to go up every night. You go into the improv. You get certain spots. But after that, I mean, it was one big show. It wasn't like a three-person show. It was a cavalcade of comedy. You know, there was 30 comics, 20 comics on the show. So, so if they like you, you put you up or... Robin Williams is, is not coming in or he's running late, go up, Robin comes in, we'll give it a light. You know, it was just like that. So you had to be around and it was fun. So as you're working out, do you sit there, do you start putting your sights on LA at all or, or do you, are you digging New York or what, what, what road do you take? No, I'm, uh, I'm very happy. At, in those days we were told you don't go to LA unless they pick you up and fly you. And I got a TV pilot that was going to be done in New York. And at the last minute, they decided to film it in L.A. So they gave me tickets and picked me up at the airport and put me up. So I went out there, did the pilot, uh, went to the improv, and knew some of the comics by that time. And uh, I went, oh, this is nice. I uh, went home. I closed up everything in about a week. And uh, I put everything in my car, gave it to one of those uh, car delivery places, put it on the truck. And one very cold winter night, flying out of LaGuardia, looking down at, you know, Queens and Manhattan going, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) I mean, really, it was like, it was like, almost like it was drawing me into it. Like, what the hell am I doing? You know, I never left New York. You know, I always lived here. I'm leaving family. And, you know, you always leave, but I can always fly back. That was my big mistake. So I didn't come home enough as I should have. Okay, well, let's, you know, that happens. So now you get out here, and the when, does, when do you start getting the TV, like the Tonight Shows and stuff like that? How long does that take for you to get? Again, it's, you know, I hate to keep saying this. It's like, I never really pushed. I was very lucky. I had some really good agents. I really did luck in with agents. I actually even had an agent who went after me and stole me from uh, APA. William Morris took me over. So I was very lucky that way, and I was doing, you know, guest starring roles, and then I got a pilot with Fred Silverman, then I got I got two of them, and then uh, uh, we did this other pilot, and nothing got picked up, but I was making money, I was making a name, and I also, when I did the Tonight Show, again, I didn't try to, 
the first national show I really did was the Merv Griffin show. Okay. Which gets very underrated because a lot of comics did their first spot on the Merv Griffin spot on the Merv Griffin show or the Dinah Shaw show, but you know who knows that now. But that's where a lot of comics really got their first national spot. But Johnny still was the the brass ring. Uh, they were Jim McCauley was looking for comics coming into the improv, and he was waiting for a comic. No, the, Jim was late, notoriously always late. So Bud said, you go on. As soon as Jim comes in, we'll give you the light. So I get on stage, and I see the light. So I'm thinking that they forgot to shut the light, you know, to get off, that this is still the light from the last comic. But as soon as I hit the stage, Jim walked in. So I started doing some material. And then they started blinking it. So I'm going, oh, okay. And I got off. And uh, I go into the famous hallway. As Bud used to say, no standing in the hall. And uh, Jim McCoy comes up to me and goes, how come you never asked me to see you? I go, I figure when I'm ready, you'll find me. And he goes, come to my office. Oh, you know what? I'm screwing up stories. Sorry, I'm messing up that story. That happened with Jim. But before that, the Merv Griffin story. They were doing Merv Griffin, Guy Les Sinclair. Is this getting confusing? No, no. I, I'm, so, yeah, the Merv okay. Griffin came first, and then you all... Les Sinclair was the guy, an English guy or Australian, was booking Merv Griffin show. He was looking at the last bunch of comics before Merv was going to go off the air. So... Every comic went up, and it was a teen tour was in the room. So this is 14 to 16-year-old kids from the East Coast. You know, they took a bus out west for the summer. They go to L.A., they do some stuff in L.A., then they take a bus back. So people were just dying on stage doing their TV bit because you had to be sparkling clean in those days on TV, especially Merv Griffin because a lot of places he played in the afternoon. And he, it was it was death. And then I go up. So the auditions are over, and I go up, and I get a little dirty. And the kids start to like it. And I do really well. And get off, and Les comes up to me and says, how come you weren't on the list? I'm going, I don't know. He goes, you're very, very funny. Would you like to do the show? And I go, well, I'm leaving, I'm, I'm going to drop a thing now, I'm leaving in, uh, in a week to start filming Roxanne with Steve Martin. And he goes, what are you doing tomorrow? I said, the Merv Griffin show? <laughs> he said, yes. He exchanged numbers. I get home, he calls me, he goes, by the way, what are you going to do? You can't do some of that material. I'm just thinking about it. And I went over my act, what I'm going to do over the phone. They said, okay, we'll pick you up uh, tomorrow. And I did the Merv Griffin show. So you did the Merv Griffin show, you get that under your belt, and then right. with the Tonight Show, Macaulay comes up to you after your set and says, come to your office. Right. And, and, you know, he went over the act, really with a fine-tooth comb, and in your head you're going, you know, physically outside, you go, oh yeah, okay, sure, 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 
show. Yeah, I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take that out. I'll do that. Yeah, yeah. And in your head, you're going, what the hell does he know about comedy? <laughs> you know, but you can't say, yeah, he's the guy that, he, he's the gatekeeper. He says, Johnny won't like that, but Johnny will like this. And there was one joke about, actually, about uh, peeing and, uh, or urinating. I don't know if you have to clear that. I don't know what podcast rules are. Oh, no, you can say whatever you want. And he goes, you know what? Let's do the joke without actually saying it. Let the audience figure it out, what the punchline is. And it killed. And that's where I actually learned how to do a joke without doing a punchline and letting the audience get there first and just stare them down and, and letting them know, oh, you're pretty smart. It's, it's a brilliant piece of way of doing comedy, and I didn't know about that until Jim McCauley taught it to me. So I took a dirty joke and just let the people think dirty without saying it. Now, now you do the Tonight Show, and then what happens? Because, you know, back then everyone said, you know, when you do the Tonight Show, and maybe you were already working a lot, but when you do the Tonight Show, just all of a sudden a bunch of doors open up for you. Well, again, that was that time. I mean, I know young comics hate hearing it, but that's the way it was. So we can't change what it was. I get off. So I get called to the couch. First time. First time. Okay, people, just, you know, listeners, uh, that's, like, huge. Like, you know, that's, like, there's, that doesn't happen all the time. So when, as, and in the world of comedy, if you're a comic back then and you got called over to the couch first time, basically, you're legendary. They, they told you that just stand there because Johnny will be looking at you. And if you're moving, if you're getting off stage, you're going to see Johnny's head move. And that won't be a good shot. So just stand there. We're going to take a shot at Johnny, and he's going to break for commercial. And then you'll be able to leave your spot. About maybe a minute before I finish, they put up a sign, you're going to the couch. And uh, I, I, I just like walk over, and I'm holding a mic. I was one of the few comics that actually held a mic. I broke my own rule. But I, I used to start with that joke, uh, you know, it's an old Warnville bit. Let me move the mic stand, you'll see me better. Right. Uh, you know, I'm a big, heavy guy and, you know, got a big laugh. So I'm hold, So I couldn't use a lava layer. So I had the mic in my hand and somehow there was a hand there to give the mic to. I don't even remember. Just <laughs> a hand showed up. I gave him the mic. I walked up to there, and I'm going, whose hand do I shake first? Johnny's or Ed's? And I shake Johnny's first, thank God, and Ed's. And I sit down, and I'm going, wow, the set is really small. This is a small desk. And I look, and Johnny's talking to me, and I can't hear a thing he's saying. And so I go, yeah, it's really good to be here. And then I go, ooh, Everything looks so blue. The lights are so shiny. I mean, I was like, in like <laughs> some other world. I was like, you know, ADD or OCD, whatever you want to call it. I was just like, I wasn't paying attention. And I look at he's still talking to me. And he stops talking. I don't know what he asked me. And I just go into a bit. And I go into a bit that, that I actually say the word Hagen does. And in those days, I mean, the rules were so strict, 
you couldn't name a brand name in your act. That's how crazy it was. Not only could you curse, but you couldn't name a brand name. You had to say ice cream instead of Haagen-Dazs. So my punchline is Haagen-Dazs. So one sentence into it, I switched to another bit. It looks a little weird. I mean, I watch it today and I cringe. And I go into a bit and I get this like, it's like a 40 second laugh. I pick, you know, I pick up my pants. I, 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 I open it with my closer. Okay. And Ed's falling on the floor. Johnny is going nuts. I mean, and I can say this because I think it's on YouTube or it's on my Facebook page somewhere. I was just, to this day, I say to myself, I still could have milked it for longer, but I didn't. And uh, every time I watch it, I go, that could have gone another 15 seconds. It never ends in comedy. So, <laughs> We're so, never happy. So, yeah, of course. So, so when you get, what happens the next day, though? Did you start, did your I, phone I start blowing up? The next 10 minutes. I get off stage, a guy comes over to me and goes, Hi, my name is Dick Allen. I'm from the William Morris office. I represent Julio Iglesias. He opens up on a summer tour uh, starting next week. Uh, I would like to have your permission to have a tape to send to him. We're looking for an opening comic. And I said, sure, let me find Jim. He goes, I already have the tape. I just need your, your okay to use it. <laughs> And a week later, I was opening for Julio Iglesias in, uh, in te- the Texas State Fair, you know, in uh, 100% humidity, wearing a wool tuxedo. And, uh, you know, next up was, uh, was Vegas. And since then, I've been opening, you know, a lot of comics open for people, which is great. But, you know, I used to open for people for like years in a row. I did Julio for two years, then... Stephen Eady, there's a name for like four years. Ann Margaret for two years. Uh, Tom Jones for seven years. It just, you know, was such easy work and fun. They really treated me, you know, we got treated really well in those days. What was it like, though, for you, you know, when you, like that first gig with Julio Iglesias at the State Fair, you know, you know, as a club comic and stuff like that, you know, you're used to it smaller crowds. What was it like when you went on and all of a sudden there's a big crowd? I mean, I know in with comedy, the more people, you know, you're going to get laughs unless, you know, that's what it is. But, right. but were you intimidated at all? Because all of a sudden you're going from the intimacy to, I'm sure the state fair was outside. And, outside. Yeah, so like, what was that like when you were going on stage? Were you nervous? Did you have to sit there and adjust your reaction to the laughs? Because, you know, when the bigger the crowd, the bigger the laughs. And when you're outside... You know, in a club, we all know when a, when, you, when a, a laugh rises at a club, it stops at the ceiling, so it, it encapsulates more. Right. But, but when it's an outside, it just goes up like a balloon. It just goes to the air. How did you adjust to that when you just started playing these bigger outside venues with the big crowds? Well, first of all, I'm always scared before I go. I could be playing, you know, you know, I played at Broadway in the city. I played at Broadway Comedy Club. Great club, it's like 200, 300 people, packed on a Saturday, all tourists mostly, and just, you know, a fun club to do, and, uh, but I know it's easy, but I'm still nervous till I get that first joke over, and let's say the few times that I always blame the audience after I try everything, maybe I'm off a little or something for some reason, 
but I try to get over that. I try to fix it. And if the audience is just not buying it, I'm going, all right, I'll just, you know, I'll call it in. But I do try to always get the audience. But so I'm scared every time now after doing it for 35 years. So then, being a newcomer, now it's fine. There was 10,000 people on the lawn with thunder showers. You know, with a big cowboy in the back going, howdy, howdy. <laughs> and I'm going, and I'm there in a tuxedo, and these, these people want to see a fat Jew. And, <laughs> and I did the microphone bit, and, you know, I got a big laugh. And from then on, once you get that first laugh, you got it. And, yes, you have to wait for the laughs. But my timing is so slow that, you know, I let them picture it. And they, so the laughs can come slow, but as long as they come, I'm happy with now, now, okay. Now you mentioned earlier also you worked on Roxanne. What was that like? Because I know Shiner was in that, Middleman was in that. What was it like working with a bunch of comics? Damon Wayne's was in it. Uh, I know I'm going to miss somebody. Uh, Damon Wayne was great in it. Uh, Fred Willard. I was kind of Fred Willard's like partner in crime and that thing. It was great. I mean, you know, I had a. We were, they had us. We filmed in. Uh, well, we filmed on location in Vancouver. In, in, in the, actually British Columbia in like this little town called Nelson in the middle of the woods that they changed it to an American town you put up like American flags uh, American postal boxes people would drive through town and going did we cross the border? <laughs> and uh, my room was right next to we had we like in these motel like looked like a log cabin it was very nice it was, it was the nicest thing up there we'll just say and the room next to me was like Olivia Newton-John and uh, her then-husband, Matt Matanzi, who was in the movie, and their baby. And, uh, you know, we'd barbecue. Steve Martin would take us out. We'd go out to eat. We'd put on shows for the fire department there to raise money. You know, it was like, it was camp. It was really camp. You know, and I did Punchline. It was camp also. Bunch of comics, you know. You know, the movie Punchline didn't do that well. As I was, as it was explained to me, it was marketed wrong. Everybody thought it was going to be a comedy. And there's very funny parts into it, but it's basically, uh, I guess, uh, a drama. How would you put Punchline? I would, you know what, it's, but it is, I think it is a drama, and you're right. I think when people, when people heard Punchline, because comedy was so big at the time, they figured, eh, it's going to be a comedy. But then Tom Hanks' character was very dark, and they didn't expect that. And right. Sally Field was the mom, and then even the you know the comedy dying's easy, comedy is hard. You know, even there it showed you know it might be darker, but I think people expected it to be just a straight out comedy about a bunch of comics just goofing around and getting in trouble. Right now, people kind of know. I mean, every article out there now is how dark comics are, and everybody hates their parents, and they're all broken and. I think that might be true, but you know what? I think everybody's broken in some way. I think just because we have the platform to talk about where our cracks are, that it sounds like everybody is just a broken person that's in comedy. Yeah, well, and it's also... Everybody's yeah. broken, but we have the outlet to talk about it. And what's funny is when you say it also is, and I agree with you, and I think everyone has their issues... But I think not every comic has issues, and I think now, and I see it on Facebook a lot, people try to sit there 
and like promote that they have issues. And after right. after a while, it's like, no, you know what? I worked with. I had a guest on my show, John Regi, who's phenomenal. I John Regi, yeah, yeah, sure. He was saying, "Hey, you know, what? I'll be honest. I've always been a pretty happy guy. Even like Ron Gallup, you know, from Philly. I'm a pretty happy sure. guy. And that's the thing. Like a lot of people sit there and they think, oh, comics are dark. And then they meet someone and they think, oh, okay, that's not bad. But then they meet someone and all of a sudden they're on Facebook going, oh, yeah, hug a comic today. And it's like, no, because we're not, everyone has their issues. And that's the thing. And, and you're right. We're the people who have a platform to talk about it. But it doesn't mean, you know, I'm sure bartenders, if you have a comic go into a bar, talk to a bartender, and you have re- his regulars talk to the bartender, he's going to say, you know what, they all have their issues. Right, everybody has issues. We just have a way of making it sound better to us by making people laugh at it. Uh, it's very hard to do a bad parent joke if you didn't have bad parents. It looks too phony. We're not doing 1960s comedy. You know, my wife, you know, uh, charges so much that when Crooks took her credit card, you know, I didn't report it because they're spending less than she is. You know, we've got to kind of be a little bit truthful. So uh, you can't write, you know, you know, uh, you can't write little baby jokes if you don't have a little baby. Right. Unless you're talking about another little baby. You could tell when it's forced and you could tell when it's real. Right. I mean, and yeah, I agree with you. Now, I want to ask you about when you were doing stand-up working for the bigger crowds. As you said, you are opening for, you know, all those people. What was it like when you would go back into playing a club? Did you feel that it was... You had to work a little harder because the crowd was smaller? I was... I guess it was my choice. I only picked the good clubs to play at. I didn't... I didn't play to, you know, the clubs that had eight people in the room. I would, you know, make sure I got a good spot. I was getting good spots at the improv. You were always a hot crowd. Yes, it didn't have the sound that you're going to get, but you got back used to it and you were able to work out new stuff. I mean, that's what your home club was about. You know, Silver Freeman used to say, during the week you could do any jokes you want. On the weekend, you do your act. Right. You know, that's the money gig. So she let us, you know, during the week play, you know, experiment. Even if she died, she didn't care. As long as you were doing... Stuff that you know she saw that would could be funny. Now, how did how did you get involved with the Jerry Lewis telephones? Uh, well, I filled out a form and I mailed it in. I uh, again, dumb luck. I was at the Improv at the Riviera. Steve Sharippa, who was became famous from the. The Soprano show was the Maitre D. Do you know Steve? I I know, I know of him. I don't personally. No, know but you know, tough guy, but he's a real teddy bear. That's, right. That's the trick. He is a teddy bear. He just talks like a tough guy. So he goes, "Hey, you know, Lanceman, Jerry Lewis is having uh, dinner downstairs at the Chinese place." He actually said the chinks. Okay. <laughs> he goes, "Would you invite him up to the show, Mister Big Shot? See if he shows up." So uh, I called the restaurant, and I said, I'd like to send over drinks to Mr. Lewis's uh, table. Uh, Mr. Lewis ain't here. I'm going, yes, he is. And I said, okay. I go, 
and just say, this is from uh, comedian Max Alexander, I know he's busy, I don't want to bother him. If he wants to come to the Late Show, we're going to save a booth for his party. And he showed up. And uh, I introduced him from the audience, and we did a little bit together, yelling back and forth. It was, and he invited me to his house for lunch the next day. So I'm going, oh, I'm going to Jerry Lewis's house? Right. Oh, man. What's that? Oh, uh, Jerry Lewis's house. This is, you know, 1980s. He goes, oh, wow. So I remember somehow that he likes blackberry brandy for somehow. So I go to this liquor store around the Riviera. And that time, it was really more desert than stores. And I said, I want your best bottle of brandy. And he had to, like, dust it off. I mean, it was like... Who knows how old it was? <laughs> and I get into a cab with the address. And I'm going, I'm going to Jerry Lewis's house. This is like, I got to tell somebody. And this is before even cell phones. You know, you had to have, you had that calling card number. And I really didn't have anybody to tell. There was no internet. It was just like, you know, you couldn't spread. I, I was dying to tell somebody. Right. <laughs> and I'm going, so I go to the cab driver going, you know who lives here? And he goes, yeah, I know, Jerry Lewis. Uh, <laughs> he knew where he lived. He, he, you know, he said, yeah, I see him all the time. Uh, so I go to the house, I give him the brandy, and we sit and we talk, and we have lunch. And uh, like a week later, he calls me, he goes, he wants me to do the telephone. You know, we'll send, you know, have somebody call, we'll fly you out, we'll have you picked up. And uh, he said, we'll fly you out, or we'll have a limo take you from L.A. to Vegas. Whatever you want. And you can bring a guest. And I, our friendship just came from there. And so he would ask you back like a lot of, a lot of the years? I did it like 18 years in a row until I got uh, the only, I missed it once because I was working with Steve and Edie and, uh, and uh, I was on the road with Steve, Lawrence and Edie May. But I pre-taped something at the improv which they showed, but I uh, I started missing it because I had uh, the weekend. I had a kidney transplant in in June of two thousand and eight. Then in uh, the very end of August of two thousand and eight, I had a stroke, so I obviously could not make that one. But I was ready to go. Now, were you working up until you had these health problems? Were you working the whole time on the road? Yeah, I was even doing dialysis on the road. The only person that knew was Bud Friedman. He would book me in his hotels and uh, George Wallace. Also, I worked with George Wallace, opened for him. And you know, I'd wake up at 5 in the morning, three times a week, go for dialysis for five hours, come home, take a nap, wake up, do the show, feel good for the first, you know, that next morning. But that afternoon, I get tired already. This dialysis cleans out your blood. And I just stay in bed, get up, do the show, wake up the next morning, go for dialysis. And I did that for like a year and a half. Now, did you feel Did you feel when you got off stage, it gave you more energy? Because they always, you know, when you, when you get, it's that certain, that certain feeling when you get off. Did you feel the energy when you got off stage and then you just got tired again? When you're on stage, it really is true. Unless, you know, there's a knife in you or something, the adrenaline 
at least for me. Some people don't have the adrenaline on the stage. You know, they don't give a hoot. The adrenaline sometimes is really pumping that, you know, I know how to use a stool to sit on. Uh, once I really had to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I was, I went on this cabbage and cow, cauliflower diet. I was working with George Wallace. And this is supposed to help my kidneys and whatever. And I used to make cabbage and cauliflower with a microwave that I would sneak into the hotel. And the whole place would smell like, you know, a cesspool. You know, you ever cook cabbage and cauliflower? It just stinks. George used to say, what the hell is he doing in there? And it gave me a lot of gas. It gave me such gas that I would have to walk around the stage because you just know people would, at the audience would look at me and people in the audience and it was bad gas and they would like be collapsing they would take you know you know they were just going ah you know the glasses would melt i mean it was just it was brutal it was just brutal gas you know people in the back row were going what the hell is that and i really had i had a very loose stomach and george used to i used to get off Introduce George, and he'd do some opening stuff, then bring me out as, as you know, just take another bow, and we'd tell some jokes, and I'd get off. But sometimes he would go a little long with it. And there was one joke we would end with that we knew was the ending joke. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, I really gotta go to the bathroom. <laughs> I'm, I'm, and I'm sweating, and I'm trying to just keep my legs together. And I'm just going, oh, this is going to be bad. I'm wearing tan pants. This is not going to be good. I'm thinking already where the bathroom is off stage. And he won't go into that last joke. And I'm sitting there. And thank God it was only gas at one point. And I see George, like something magical go over his face. Like, what died in you? And they said, George, I think it's time we talk about the pharmacist. And he went into that joke. And I said, good night. And I just made it to that bathroom. <laughs> and I got to tell you, for the next, like, six months, I worked. I hate saying this. I, I had a towel in my pants. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, did, I, I did it because that was it. Did, did you keep eating the cauliflower and cabbage? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was starting to work. I was getting better. But uh, eventually... Uh, Kidney disease is very hard to fight. So, eventually, thank God, my brother was able to give me a kidney. I know I read about that. That's that's great that you know you did get it from your brother and you got the kidney because it's it's hard to get a kidney. Oh, let me tell you, that is not well, they're not giving kidneys out willy nilly. You know, it's uh, I'm actually on the list for another one, and you know, but it's okay right now. I'm doing okay, but they wanted to put me on the list just in case because there may be a little rejection, but. So far, I got eight years out of it, and uh, I'm very happy every day of those eight years. You sure? Yeah, and that's good. And then you moved back to New York. I moved back to New York because I was told uh, by the kidney people in L.A. going, "Oh, you're going to want to, you're going to need help. You're going to need to be around your doctors for like a year at least." I said, "Really?" And uh, there was another. There was an actor. Oh, I yeah, I think he talked about it, Stephen First. Okay. He played Flounder in uh, Animal House, and I believe he had a transplant, I spoke to him, and he said, oh, yeah, you're going to want to be near family. So I closed up everything, put everything 
back into a better car, had that shit, and went to my friends. I go, you know, at that point I thought I was going to die. Actually, I really I was on. I had a not had a death wish. I went, oh, I'm not going to live. You know, I said whatever you guys want, you can have. And uh, the only thing I took was photos and any clothes I had that was brand new. Okay. Otherwise, I said, anything you want. Who wants the bed? Who wants the TVs, the stereo? You know, I just said, you know, take it. And uh, I was lucky. And so you're back, you're back in New York now. I'm back in New York. That's good. You know what? Our hour's almost up. Oh, my God. That went quick. You're going you're gonna to have to come back on because I... I down the road, because I want to hear some more of the stories, because I know you got some, Martyr said you'll have some great stories, and I know you must have some great stories, because you didn't even get into now, when I know you do a lot of uh, motivational speaking and stuff like that, and you go to a lot of corporate gigs. Well, I'm trying to, I, you know, it's, I really want to spread the world, you know, you see so much crap happening out there in the world today, look on Facebook, and you're going, oh, about Trump, about the war, gun control, listen, nothing's going to change. I'll tell you that right now. I just watched a documentary about Nat King Cole in the 50s, how he couldn't get sponsors for a show. He wouldn't show his shows down south. Uh, he moved into Hancock Park. The people that lived there wanted to perform at their parties, but they didn't want him to live there. That was, you know, 66 years ago. It hasn't changed. You can make a lot of laws, but there are certain people that have hatred so built up into themselves just in this country, we're not talking about the Middle East or anything, that you, no matter what law you change, you're going to have this hatred. Worry about yourself, your family, your friends. Tell everybody you love. It's really that simple. You know, if, if Facebook's taking you down, stop watching it. Exactly. If just taking you down, stop watching it. You've got to worry about yourself, your family, and friends. I agree with you exactly. And I want to thank you for coming on, Max. Now, how can people catch up with you and catch up all, all your old act and stuff like that? Well, it's very easy to catch up with me. I don't walk that fast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I got some stuff on YouTube, but uh, I think my Twitter is Ma Max Haha ha, at Twitter, I think. Okay. Go look up Max. I'm, I don't, you know what? I'm very big on social media. I'm on Facebook. If you want to friend me on Facebook, Max Alexander 18, I think it is on Facebook. You know, I'm old-fashioned, and uh, I keep stuff up for YouTube just because, you know, I don't want somebody to see the act, and I have to perform it in front of them again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but there's some stuff on there. Well, I, want but, to, I want to thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. And people, uh, so go, just Google Max. That's not the best way to find it. He's on Facebook. I found him on Max. It's Max Alexander. Uh, people, Twitter, I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Follow me on there. Um, also, my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 520 episodes. You can also email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. If you want to uh, Instagram, coopertalk1. If you want to play me in Words with Friends, I like Words with Friends, play me coopertalk1 also. And don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. It was a little over four years ago. Was, I, know I, had my, I had my heart condition, and I wrote that cookbook. It's 120 easy, low-sodium recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. A lot of uh, easy ingredients. You don't, you don't use cumin. Don't worry. I don't use cumin in my recipes. So you can go buy that. You can buy it at barnesandnoble.com or amazon.com. But if you go to stopthesalt.com, I make more money. I'll sign it. 
you got to eat healthy, as Max will tell you too. You know, health is right. We only live once. So, you know, when you get a second chance, you got to take it, take it the distance. So, people, please keep listening. Check out Max. Google Max Alexander. Follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Remember, it's coopertalk.net. I'm on Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. And I will talk to you guys next week with a bunch of brand new guests. Have a good weekend.